Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. So glad that you are here today because we have been in a series called I Might Be Wrong About. And in this series, we're talking about all kinds of things that we might be wrong about. How many know that we receive all kinds of information, all kinds of knowledge from all kinds of different places? You might be receiving information from the news. You might be receiving information from TikTok. You might be receiving information from your friends and from the internet. But chances are you are receiving information that is wrong, that is false. And spoiler alert, just because you read about it on a blog, it might not be true, right? Just because you watched a video about it and somebody crafted some video on TikTok doesn't mean that it's accurate. There are things that we might be wrong about. And so our series is based on this scripture that we read about in Romans chapter two. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And what I like about this scripture is that it tells us that our church should be a learning church. It tells us that our church should be a growing church. It tells us that our church should be a transforming church. The church that we had, the church that we were five years ago should not be the church that we are today. And the church that we are today should not be the church that we will be in five years time, right? That we should be a transforming church, that we should always be hearing the daily word of what God has for us in this season, and we should be transformed by his Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're doing in this series. We're approaching all kinds of topics that we might be wrong about. And for the last few weeks, Meredith has been talking to us about how we might be wrong about Jesus and we might be wrong about success, and we might be wrong about the church. And today, I'm talking about how we might be wrong about sex. We might be wrong about sex. Come on, we we need to talk today about how we might be wrong about sex. And and I know that that potentially that you just froze up when I said that three-letter cuss word in church, right? And like you just felt all kinds of awkward, like we can't talk about sex in church. Absolutely, we can talk about sex in church. And if you, if you feel a level of awkward when I just said the word sex, um, I just want you to understand how awkward this is for me to talk about sex in a room full of people, especially with the fact that my mother-in-law is sitting on the front row right here. And she keeps on looking at me and I'm like, would you stop? I don't wanna make eye contact. So if I'm putting all of my attention over here right now, it's because I know that Kathy Pitts is looking at me and I don't wanna make eye contact with her while I'm talking about sex today. All right? But we we need to talk about sex in church. And so this is the disclaimer for all the parents. I I know that many of the families that have young children are not here today because they want to preview today's message before they share it with their kids. And I think that that's wise and I think that that's good. And this is your 15-second disclaimer. If you're not ready to hear a message about about sex, then you are in the wrong place. Because today we're going to talk about sex. Is that all right? Okay, I don't see anybody moving, so I would take it that you are okay with us talking about sex in church today. 
Now, it's important for us to talk about sex in church, but we're not leading the conversation about sex. We believe that the conversations should start in the home. We believe that you, as parents, should be having the conversation with your kids about what sex and sexuality is like. We don't believe that it's politicians' opportunity to tell you about what sex is like. We don't believe that the school system should tell you about what sex is like. We don't believe that Disney should be telling you about what sex is like. We, as the church, are coming alongside you in the home to support the message of what God tells us sex is like. And uh, we need to talk about sex today. I I didn't grow up in in a church that talked about sex. I wish that we did, but we didn't talk about sex. We had all kinds of messages about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, and we learned about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. We talked about all of these kind of different things, but I didn't know what to do with the struggles and the issues that I had as an individual. And so these issues that I had as a young boy became issues that I had as a teenager, became issues that I had as a young man, and these were issues that were not resolved as I entered into adulthood. And so we need to now have these conversations in church because if we're not talking about them in church, it's not like the the conversation isn't taking place. The conversation is taking place everywhere except the church. And so we need to talk about sex today. My entire um, understanding of sex in growing up in my home was essentially like if we sat down and we watched a movie as a family and a sex scene came on, my parents would tell my brothers and I, cover your eyes while we fast forward the, the movie until we get past the sex scene. And how many know that when you tell a little boy to cover his eyes, all he's gonna do is like this, right? <laughs> And now I'm just wondering why it is that I'm not allowed to watch whatever's on the TV and I'm wondering what is wrong with me because I want to watch this but my parents are telling me that I should not watch this and now I don't know why I cannot watch this. I'm just being told don't do something, right? And if you grew up in a church that told you about sex, I would venture a guess that the only thing that you ever heard about sex was don't do it. Don't do it until you get married, and then once you're married, have sex with the person that you are married to, right? That's the entirety of what we talk about as Christians when it comes to sex, but that's so narrow. That's so narrow because our sex and sexuality is so much more broad than that, and if our young people are not learning about sex in the church, then they're gonna learn about sex somewhere else. Right, and when you poll young people about where they are learning about sex from, it's not from the church, it's not from their pastors, it's often not from their parents. They're, the majority of the influence that they are gaining when it comes to sex is from TV, from movies, from Netflix, from the internet. That's where people are learning about sex from. How many are ready for the conversation around sex to be redeemed and to be restored today? We're gonna be talking about how God feels and thinks about sex. It's so important that we're talking about it today. I think that, um, that the Bible is really clear about the things that matter, and I think the Bible is vague about the things that don't. I think that Jesus is really clear about the things that matter, and Jesus is really vague about the things that don't. And the Bible is full of information and wisdom about sex. 
And so we should talk about, I don't know why we're vague about it when it comes to church and when it comes to our small group gatherings and those kind of things because the Bible is full. There's an entire book of the Bible that talks about sex. There's entire chapters of the Bible that talk about sex. There's principles that we can be learning from about sex when we look at the Bible. And so we need to be talking about it today because what I have found is that if you aren't talking about sex, then you are in isolation. Right? And so it's not just important that we talk about it today on behalf of our teens or for our teens' sake. What we have experienced and what we know as adults is that if you have an issue around sex as a young person and that is unresolved, that issue just steps into adulthood and it's not dealt with. And so as young people, many of us grew up in the church and we were abused or we were neglected or we were mistreated and we tried to say something and we weren't able to say something and the people that we tried to speak to said, hush, don't talk about that. We, we, don't, we don't talk about that around here. And so then what happens is that as somebody who wants to talk about that, you are now in isolation. Right? Because you're not able to experience and have that conversation in a safe environment. And where does, where does the enemy want you to be? In isolation, right? Where does God not want you to be? In isolation. But this is where we often find ourselves when we're not able to have healthy conversations in a safe environment. We find ourselves in isolation. And what that means is that many of us have no theology at all about sex and sexuality, or at best we have a poor theology about sex and sexuality. And so we need to talk about it today. But before, before we even really start talking, because I'm not even started yet, we're gonna be here for a little while today. But before we really get talking about this today, I just wanna say, if something has happened to you if something was done to you, there is healing that is available to you. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what you experienced. Healing is available to you. Jesus is able to restore you. It doesn't matter if you have done something to someone. Forgiveness is available to you. There is nothing that is too great for the blood of Jesus to cover. And if you don't hear anything else that I say today, I want you to hear that because that is enough. That the blood of Jesus is sufficient for you. It doesn't matter what has happened to you. It doesn't matter what you have done. Jesus is enough. Amen? Amen. So today we're talking about how we might be wrong about Sex, and I, and I hear some people already thinking about like where they think that this message is going. Stop, you have no idea <laughs> where this message is going today. And I know that you want me to talk about certain specific things about what you are allowed to do with your girlfriend or what you're allowed to do with your boyfriend or if it's okay to watch pornography with your spouse or if it's like my position on gay marriage, all of these different kind of things. I know that there are specific things that you want to be able to talk about today, but this is just an overview. We're just like 30,000 foot level, we're just gonna have this conversation today, just touching on how God thinks and feels about sex. Come on, just, just, just for my sake, just look at the person nearest you and just say, this is just an overview. 
This, this is like the first time that some people have breathed in the last five minutes. Just say, this is just an overview. Just let me know that you are still alive and breathing today. This is just an overview about sex. So we're not gonna get into specifics today, but we're just gonna talk as a, as a body about sex. And, and when it comes to how God feels about something or what we should believe about something, it's important that we don't just look at one scripture specifically about that thing, right? About that topic. The best way I think that we can understand how God thinks and feels about something is to look at the entirety of the context of scripture and specifically to look at how God views something through different lenses, about how God views something through different transitions that have taken place over the course of time. And so these transitions would be at creation. How did God feel about this thing at creation? We call this the original intent. When God first created something, what was the original intent? right, at creation. The second one that we need to look at this thing through is the fall. How did sin affect this thing? In this context, how did sin affect sex? And the third one is restoration and redemption. How did Jesus coming to earth and dying on the cross and coming back to life again, how did that impact this thing? And the last one is a new creation. In heaven, what will this thing look like? It's important that when we're looking at something, when we're studying something out, that's true for everything, not just for sex. When you're studying something out, look at it in the entirety, the entire context of scripture. And so when we look at sex in the Bible, we don't have to read like beyond two pages to find sex mentioned in the Bible. In Genesis chapter one, verse 28, like literally the first book of the Bible the first chapter of the first book, God mentions sex. He says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and what? Multiply. multiply. How do we multiply? We have sex, right? That, that's biblical version language of have sex with each other and make more children. He's, the first commandment that God gave Adam and Eve was not to work was not to pray, was not to plant more trees. He said, have sex with each other. He said, I have created this beautiful planet and I want you to fill it with other humans. He says, be fruitful and multiply. That's God's original intent was that we would have sex with each other. And so the first point that I wanna make today is that God created sex. That's why it's okay for us to talk about today. That's why we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about it today because God created it. And if God is good and God created this and he gave it to us, then this is a good gift for us. Sex is a good gift from God for us. Can somebody say amen? Amen. amen. God created sex. God created your sexuality. The second point that I'm gonna get to is that while God gave it to us, it should not be worshiped. God created sex, but it should not be worshiped. Sex is a good gift that God has given to us. But sex becomes a bad thing when it is experienced outside of the original context and design that he made for us. And, and what is the, the context and the design for sex? Marriage. It says this in Genesis two and three, he says that one man and one woman would come together as one flesh for one lifetime. 
That is the context for sex. It's not even just in Genesis that it's talked about. Jesus confirms this when he's talking in Matthew chapter 19. He says, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's God's intent at the beginning, that a man and a woman would come together as one flesh for one lifetime. That is his intent. And how many know that if God creates something, the enemy wants to pervert that thing? The enemy wants to put distance between God's original intent and how we experience that thing. Right? That's what the enemy wants to do. I was reading uh, this story the other day about a woman in Germany who has fallen in love with inanimate objects. Not people, with stuff she's in love with. And, and not just any kind of stuff, she was originally in love with trains, and now she's in love with planes. And not just planes, like specifically she's in love with a model plane. And she has filed to be able to marry this plane. Crazy, right? Now we know that this is not, like there's other kind of things going on with this individual. Right? She had tried relationships with other boys, but that didn't work out well for her, and so now she wants an inanimate object because there is now perversion between God's original design and how we are experiencing what God has originally created for us. And God has created something this way, and the enemy always wants to pervert. The enemy always wants to bring distance. The, the enemy always wants to bring distortion. It's what the enemy wants to do, is to bring lies and confusion and steal from us our understanding of how God created for something to be. But what about, well, what about sex outside of marriage, right, with another person that is consensual? What about that, right? Because if he agrees to it and she agrees to it, then surely that's okay, right? Surely there's, there's no harm in that. Surely there's no damage in premarital sex or shacking up with somebody or Netflix and chill and all that kind of stuff. Right? Surely there's no issue with that if it's consensual, right? The issue with that is that you are taking what God originally designed to be experienced inside of marriage and you are taking that gift that he has given us and you are now trying to experience it outside of God's original design and intent for that thing, right? And, and people that make the argument that it's just sex, they would say that it's just physical, Right? How many of us know that sex is not just physical? Sex is physical, but sex is also emotional. Sex is also relational. Sex is also spiritual. Sex is also solical. And when you have sex with somebody, you are not just connecting with them physically, you are joining together with them as one flesh, right? God says that it is no longer two people, but you have become one flesh, right? 
And so now we have people that have sex with different people and now you are connecting your soul to this person and now you are connecting your soul to that person and now you are connecting your soul to this person and to that person and now we wonder why I feel like I am connected with all of these different people and why I can't stop thinking about all of these different people. It is the definition of a soul tie that you are making with all of these different people because sex is not just physical. It is emotional, relational, solical, spiritual. It is an, a deeply intimate experience that you are having with a person. That's why I wouldn't make the argument that marriage is just a document that you sign. It's not just a ceremony that is taking place. When you are having sex with a person, you are entering into a covenantal relationship with that person. The ceremony isn't what marriage is. Your marriage day doesn't make you married. When you are in a covenantal relationship with a person, I believe that that's what God says that marriage is. And, and in addition to that, I think that just, that consent sets the bar too low. Consent sets the bar way too low, right? Because consent just means that you agree to do it with somebody else but consensual behavior and bad behavior, they go hand in hand all the time. Just because you agree to do it with somebody doesn't mean that it's a good decision, right? Like if my friend calls me and he said, hey, um, I'm thinking about robbing this bank, do you wanna rob this bank with me? And I said, yeah man, let's go rob this bank. I am now in a consensual relationship with this person, but it's also just really dumb that we would go and rob this bank, right? I was reading the other day about people in Hollywood that drink each other's blood, which is just gross for starters, but also they say that it's a, a ritual that they do together to bring them in closer relationship with each other. It's consensual, but it's bad behavior. It's just also really dumb. Consent and bad behavior go hand in hand all the time. And there's all kinds of examples of consensual behavior and bad behavior that go hand in hand. But consent sets the bar way too low. And God calls us to set the bar up here. This is consent. This is what God calls us to. And what is this? This is to consider, is it good for him? Is it good for her? If it is good for him, and it is good for her, then it is good for you to do. If it is not good for him, if it is not good for her, then it is not good for you to do. That is the standard that God calls us to. This is the standard of love. This is not just what do I get out of it. This is what is good for him and what is good for her is good for us to do. And this is essentially coming from the motivation of being led by love. It is using the question, asking the question, what does love require of me? And that being the lens through which we live out our lives and experience interactions with each other. What does love require of me? Consent sets the bar too low. God calls us to this standard because sex is an intimate experience with somebody. And intimacy is fueled by exclusivity, not by experience. It's not about how many different people you can be with. You can't be with a lot of different people and think that you can be intimate with those people. 
Intimacy is fueled by exclusivity and not by experience. And when you have serial sexual experiences with different people, you rob those people from the ability to be intimate with their future spouse. You rob your own ability to be intimate with your future spouse. And so cohabitation and premarital sex are bad, not specifically because the Bible says so, but because it's not asking the question, what does love require of me? And, and I hear people say uh, all the time that they want to have sex with a person so that they can get experience before they enter into marriage, right? It's this argument that people make, that they need to get experience before marriage, right? This is something, have you ever heard this excuse before? Have you ever heard this before? That I need experience, this is not just me, right? You have heard this before as well. That they need experience before they get married, right? The issue with that is that you are now trading experience for intimacy. You don't have the ability to be intimate with a whole bunch of different people and so now you are trading intimacy for experience. The way that Meredith and I chose to date and spend our time in our engagement was that we wanted to be virgins up until we got married. And we are not virgins anymore. We have, just in case you didn't know, we have a, we have a couple small kids, right? Uh, but we wanted to be virgins up until we got married. Not because we didn't have opportunities, not because we didn't have desires or impulses, not because we didn't want to have sex with different people in different seasons of life, but because I desired intimacy with my future spouse more than I desired intimacy with her while we were dating. And she with me. And any person that I was dating before Meredith, I wanted to be able to say to their future spouse, I never took something from her that belongs to you. And I wanted to make sure that I was guarding and respecting and honoring the people that I was dating, my wife included, so that I would never take something before it's time and that we would enter into that in the way that God intended and God designed for it to be. People, um, it's that same kind of thing, like you have to try before you buy. Right? It's another way that people say that. It's, it's this idea that before you buy a car, you need to test drive that car to determine if you are compatible with that car. If you're, before you lock into that deal, you wanna make sure that you're compatible. And we talk about that when it comes to sex as well and relationships before marriage and what sex looks like before marriage that we need to try before we buy because I don't wanna get married to somebody that I might not be compatible with. Right? Like marriage is some kind of consumeristic transaction that takes place. But the joy of what Meredith and I were able to experience together is that our intimacy was a journey that we got to go on together. And I would rather that, I, I would rather, our wedding night was a mess. Just let me be really transparent, right? <laughs> Neither of us had any idea what we were doing. We were completely clueless, and it was awkward, and it was weird, and it was confusing, and it was, I can't look at Kathy Pitts right now. But I would rather that, 
I would rather the teasing that my friends made of me in high school and college about, you're really gonna be a virgin up until, yes, I am gonna be a virgin up until the point that I get married. The teasing that my wife experienced in high school and college for being a virgin and saving herself up until getting married, I would rather that than enter into marriage wondering if my wife is comparing me to some other guy that she's been with. I would rather what we experienced in the awkwardness of our wedding, I would rather that than being unable to fully give myself to her because I was tied to all kinds of different people that I had been with in the past. I wanted to fully be able to give myself to my wife. I would rather, I would rather the way that we did it. It was awkward and very confusing. <laughs> my, my friends used to tease me about like, you're really gonna be a virgin? Like we're, out, we're all having sex with different people and you're really gonna like miss out on all of this. We're having sex now and you're gonna hold yourself for years until you get married. And I'm like, yes, I am. But, but when I get married to my wife, I'm just gonna play catch up. That's all that's gonna happen is we're just gonna have a whole bunch more sex so that by the end of it, we're gonna end up the same, but I'm just holding myself to be with the one person. It's a, it's a fun game that we're playing now. We're just playing catch up on anybody else. That's why if you're holding, if you're holding out, if you're a young person who's holding out to get married to somebody else, you can just tell them that I'm just, I'm just getting ready to play catch up. That's all. I'm not missing out on anything. And, and you, might, you might think that what I'm saying is old fashioned. I think that it is, but not like 1950s old fashioned. I think it's like original intent, old fashioned. I think like this is the way that God created for it to be was sex inside of marriage. That is old fashioned. But, but I think that it's both the man's and the woman's responsibility to do this. It's not, it's not just the woman's responsibility. Part of the issue that we, that we have in church culture is that we talk about how purity is only the woman's responsibility. Right? We teach about how it's only the woman's responsibility to have these standards of how they're going to protect their own purity from the man. And so this woman has purity that she is now guarding of herself, and she is now resisting the man who cannot control himself. This is, this is what we tell people, essentially, is that the man cannot control himself, and it is the woman's responsibility to hold the boundaries, to hold the line, because the man cannot control his own urges. He cannot control his own desires. And, and let me just tell you about our experience a little bit more. I took Meredith on a, a very romantic first date. We went ice skating and I spent all of my money doing that at the time and I didn't have any, really hardly any money to go out for a nice dinner afterwards and so we went to Burger King and it was very romantic on our very first date. And because back then I was so charming and so romantic and so attractive, at the end of the very first date, she leaned in and she kissed me. And I was like, who is this woman that leans in and kisses me? This is the man's responsibility. And if you ask her, she's gonna tell the story differently. But because I have the microphone today, I get to tell the story the way that it really happened, not just the way that she thinks that it happened. 
And so she leans in and kisses me, and I'm like, this is a woman who likes kissing people. This is a woman who is very forward. I need to have a conversation with this person. And so the next day, I think it was like the next day, or it was very soon afterwards, during the day, I sat down with her, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I know that I'm very romantic, and I know that I'm very attractive, <laughs> and you are obviously the kind of person that cannot keep your hands off of me, but I just need to tell you what our standards, what my standards are in this relationship, right? And too often we put this responsibility on the woman. In our context, I initiated the conversation and we sat down together in the middle of the day, not at night, not at 12 o'clock at night trying to come up with what our standards around our boundaries are gonna be. Because how many know that if you're gonna have that conversation, you've already violated like six of the boundaries that you probably should set up and safeguard for yourself. And so we sat, I think it was around coffee or lunch or something like that in the middle of the day, and we had this conversation. I said, hey, this is how far I'm willing to go. You've already gone further than I was willing to go, but, <laughs> but now we need to have this conversation to set it for next time so that you're clear and I'm clear about what we're gonna do in our relationship. But it's not just the woman's responsibility. It is the man's responsibility as well, right? And in 1 Timothy, when uh, Paul is talking about modesty for women, he's not just talking about putting on more clothes, he's talking about dressing appropriately. He's talking about making sure that your jewelry is not excessive and putting all kinds of attention on yourself and all of those kind of things. It's not just about put on more clothes and don't show your shoulders or don't show your ankles, right? He's talking about being modest in how you're dressing. And anytime that when we're reading the Bible, we see lust being an issue, the person that is on the receiving end of that lust is not the person who is at issue. The person who is lusting after somebody else is the person that is in sin. And so often we talk about it like it's the woman's fault, right? The Bible says very clearly, if you are lusting after somebody else, you are at fault. Regardless of what they said, regardless of what they wore, regardless of how they acted, you are at fault if you are lusting after another person. And I just wanna say, men, we have to do better in this area. Men, we need to stand up and protect women. We need to stand up and have the decency to honor the people that we are with and to have the conversation in this area because it is not the woman's responsibility, it is our responsibility in the people, in the relationships that we are in. So God created sex. He gave it to us as a gift. Sex and sexuality is a gift that God has given us. And it's a good gift. But when God originally gave it to us, it wasn't long before sin entered into the world. And since then, the enemy has been at work trying to distort this good gift that God gave to us. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna give you a list of all the things that are permissible and not permissible and okay for you to do by yourself and not okay for you to do by yourself and things that are okay in a dating relationship versus a, a marriage relationship because I think that that's, that list is not the point, right? And it can be confusing because when you read through the Old Testament, the Old Testament is this mixed bag of examples of how relationship takes place, right? Like all these great men and women of the Bible, a lot of them walked in sexual sin. Abraham, right? had sex not just with his wife, but his wife's servant. David committed adultery. 
Lot had sex with his two daughters. All kinds of examples take place of sexual sin in the Old Testament. And it can be really confusing about where do we look to then for the standards because the Bible doesn't specifically say premarital sex is a sin. It's not thou shalt not do this or do that. And so where do we look to for our standards and our ethics when it comes to sexuality? I think that there's so much that's confusing, confusing in the Bible about this topic specifically because so much time happens between when God created sex and the enemy ruined sex and then Jesus comes to tell us about what we should do about that, right? And so we have this entire context that takes place now and we're not sure what to do with it and then Jesus comes and he says, hey, the answer is true for anything that has been distorted. The, the answer is the same for anything that sin has entered into. Give it back to God. And so anything that has been defiled, anything that has been broken, give it back to God. That's why no matter what you have done, you can give it to God. No matter what has been done to you, you can give it back to God. And God can do what only God can do. God will do what only God can do. God has made those promises clear that God can heal you, that freedom is available for you today, that forgiveness is available for you today, that no matter what you have done, no matter what you have experienced, Jesus' answer is the same. Give it back to God and just watch what God can do with that thing. And so I, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna get into this list of things that are permissible or are sins or are not sins and things that we can do and things that we cannot do and all of those kind of things because I think it's secondary. It's not that I don't have positions and, convic and convictions and beliefs about all of these kind of different things, but I think that it's secondary. And you and I might disagree about what is a sin and what isn't a sin, and that's totally cool. And, and if you have a position that is different than mine, I'm happy to hear what your position is. I'm happy to hear what your argument is. I have studied this out. I've gone to Bible college. I've studied this out extensively to understand about what is sin and what isn't sin in this area. And if, if you have a position that's different than mine, I'm open to hearing it, but I wanna hear your, I wanna hear your argument based on scripture. Not, not on experience, not on emotions, not on relationships, not on what your friend told you, not on what the news told you. I wanna hear your answer based on scripture and based on what God says about this. And then there we can search for truth together. But I don't wanna, I don't wanna just hear about emotions and, and what you think about something. But I, but I also think this that for too long we have had convictions in the church around divorce or around same-sex issues and all of these kind of different things. We've had convictions about these things and we put them on the same position as our conviction about the sovereignty of God, right? And we talk about this being the same as the deity of God. And I'm not saying that this is not important, but I'm just saying that this is secondary. This is not central to my faith. This comes underneath this. The centrality of my faith is on Jesus who is the Christ and what he did for me, that he created me and that he made me and that he loves me and that he has restored me and that he has redeemed me. Not that these things are not important, but they're just not central to our faith. What we do in the church, we have, um, 
We take scriptures like this, a scripture in Romans chapter one that I wanna read. It says this in Romans chapter one, verse 26. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. He says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so many of us are like, see homosexuality is a sin and I'm like okay well let's read on verse 29 says they have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil greed and depravity they are full of envy murder strife deceit and malice they are gossip slanderers God haters insolent arrogant and boastful they invent ways of doing evil that's some kind of wrong if you're inventing ways of doing evil they disobey their parents they have no understanding no fidelity no love no mercy although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do these things but they also approve of those who practice them and, and you're gonna tell me that like you have never been boastful, that you've never been arrogant, you, you've never gossiped, you've never been envious of somebody else, right? What we don't get to do with scriptures like this is to say, well, those sins are really bad and those are the ones that we're gonna focus on. And these sins that are mentioned, well, I deal with them, and so they're not a big deal, so I'm just gonna ignore these sins because these are the ones that I deal with. We don't get, get to ignore these ones and focus on these ones. That's what we don't get to do when we read scripture like this. And even when we look at scripture like in Romans chapter one, it's important that we understand what's being said in the larger context. This is not a list of sins to avoid. What this is trying to get us to understand is the goodness of God's grace that covers it all. It's the goodness of God that says, regardless of what issue you have, regardless of what problem you have, regardless of what you have done, God's grace covers it all. God's forgiveness is available for you today. And I just wanna take like 15 seconds and thank God for the goodness of His grace that says, no matter what I have done, He has done more for me. If not for the grace of God, there go I. And I'm not gonna stand in judgment of somebody else because I have sin that I'm dealing with myself as well. And God, thank you that you don't treat me the way that I deserve to be treated. God, thank you that you are better to me than I've been to myself. God, I'm not gonna be judgmental about somebody else and I thank you for the grace that is available for me. God, I thank you for what you have done for me, for my own hangups, for my own issues, for my own problems. God, thank you that you have saved me and restored me and redeemed me. And when I was in my darkest place, you saw me and you saw it fit to reach down and save me from it. God, thank you. That's what, that's what Romans is talking about. That's what Paul is talking, talking about in this book. Not as a list of sins to avoid, but as a grace to understand and receive. And so God created sex. That's my first point. My second point and my last point is that created things should not be worshiped. If it has been created, it should not be worshiped. God created sex 
but it should not be worshiped. And in, in Matthew chapter six, Jesus is talking about how you cannot serve two masters. Specifically, he's talking about how you cannot serve money and God. But essentially what he's saying is that you cannot serve that is temporary. You cannot serve that which has been created and God. You cannot take the created things, money and sex and marriage and relationship. You can't take those things and put them on the same position as how you see God because that which has been created cannot be worshiped. God alone can be worshiped. And many of us will take the created things and we will put it in the same position as how we view God. We take sex and we put it in the same position of how we view God. We think about it more than we think about God. We want it more than we want God. We put it in the same position. We worship sex more than we worship God. And God is saying that which is created cannot be worshiped. God alone can be worshiped because the created things will not satisfy. They are temporary. And that which has been created is only a temporary satisfaction for you. It is not going to satisfy in the same way that God the Father is able to satisfy you. And so what that means is that our biggest hope in life should not be to have sex. Our biggest hope in life should not be to get married. Our biggest hope in life should be that we would be united again with Christ and that while we are here on earth, that we would live as his ambassadors on earth. This is what our biggest hope should be in life because a life without sex is not deficient, but a life without Jesus is. And too many of us live like we cannot, like we cannot avoid sex like life without sex is deficient, but it's not. Life without marriage is not deficient. Life without Jesus is. And it's important for us to remember that God has given it to us as a good gift, but sex is not God, it is a gift, and it should not be worshiped. And so the question that I wanna ask you today is are you willing to take sex and submit it to God. Your desire for sex and submit it to your desire for God. To understand that your sexuality should come secondary to your desire for God because anything that's on this level up here, this is where we get our identity from. And you should only ever get your identity from your creator, from your father. And too many of us put our sexual desires up here. We find our identity in who we have slept with. We find our identity in our orientation and who we're attracted to. We find our identity in these things. But the question that I have for you today is, are you willing to submit your sexual desires to the sovereignty of God? Because your identity comes from God. And so some of us today, need to repent of how we have been living. We need to repent of how we view things. We need to, repentance essentially just means to turn. Like I was pursuing this, I was doing this, and now I'm just willing to turn in this direction. We need to admit to our spouse that we have been walking in lust and sin. We need to admit to our spouse that we have been having an emotional affair with someone else at the office. We need to admit to God and confess to God that I have been walking in sin. 
And we need to admit that I might be wrong about sex and sexuality. And when I was, when I was younger, um, the lie that I believed was that if it wasn't hurting somebody else, then it was okay for me to do. And so I justified pornography when I was younger because I would think, well, it's just me, and so pornography is okay because it's not an issue that is hurting somebody else. And then I started studying more and I realized pornography hurts all kinds of people. It hurts me because it arouses something in myself that God designed to be experienced in another kind of way. It hurts other people because if you can't make the connection between pornography and human trafficking, then you are missing something. It, it hurts other people because it changes the way that you view men and women, and now you don't just view them as the creation of God, now you view them, you objectify men and women like they don't have value inherently because God has created them. You don't see the God on the inside of the person that you're viewing on the screen. And too many of us have these issues from childhood and our teenage years and we don't deal with them and so now we walk into our adult years and, and our entire experience around sex has been hidden and full of deceit and full of shame and something that I experience by myself. And I used to get really confused when I was younger and I was single and I would look at people that were married and I would say, how did that person and that person just have an affair with somebody else? Like, you're married, you get to have sex with each other all the time, why would you want to have sex with somebody else? It made no sense to me until I started to realize that it's because many of us have allowed sin to enter into this place that we should be experiencing in the confines of marriage with somebody else. And it has taught us to experience sex in a shameful way. It has taught us to experience sex in a deceitful way. And so now lying has entered into it. Deceit has entered into it. Shame has entered into it. And so now when I am able to have sex in my relationship with my spouse, now I feel like there's this itch that isn't being scratched because sex is meant to be experienced by myself or with somebody else outside of marriage. And this is the lie that we tell ourselves. And, and as I've been preparing for today's message, I, I was in, in this room by myself several times this past week and just praying and, and asking God what he would want for me to say. And as I was here, I just, I prophetically kept on hearing chains breaking off people. I was by myself, but I heard sounds of chains breaking off people. And I believe that it's God's heart today that we would find freedom in this place, that we would find freedom in the name of Jesus. And so we're gonna have an opportunity to respond here in just a few moments. We're gonna have some of our team that are down the front that want to be able to pray with you and make themselves available to you because if you have had something happen to you and you need to give it to God and find freedom, this is your opportunity to do that. If you have done something and you need to seek repentance, this is your opportunity to do that. Regardless, this is your opportunity to give something to God that you have been holding onto. You will never find freedom and healing if you hold on to it for yourself. And you might feel a little intimidated if you're here today and you think, well, I can't respond in front of a whole bunch of people because then people will look at me and people will wonder about what's going on. And, and if you don't feel comfortable, then that is okay. But don't let it wait in finding freedom. Don't let it wait in finding wholeness and restoration.
Find somebody. Find somebody that you can pray with. If it's your spouse that you need to admit something to, if it's an accountability partner that you need to speak to, if it's God that you need to confess something to, this is your opportunity to find freedom. It's not about the list of sins, it's about receiving the grace and the goodness of God that is available to all of us today. And our, our scripture that we've been talking about is, can everyone stand for me, everyone that's able to? Our, our scripture that we have for this entire series is uh, Romans chapter two about being transformed in our mind. But Romans chapter one, the verse right beforehand says this. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship.